Welcome to Meet the Cast at the Apple Store Soho in New York. In a moment, we'll welcome this evening's moderator, Matthew Shuckman, and actors Shorey Agdashlu and Stephen Strait from The Expanse. But first, here's a trailer. I'm looking for a girl. Her name is Julie. She discovers something. Something big. If Mars and Earth get into a throwdown, who stands to gain? Maybe someone wants a war. Everything going on out there, it's all got to do with her. The Expanse two-night premiere starts December 14th on Sci-Fi. The evening's moderator, Matthew Shuckman, and actor Shorey Adashlu and Stephen Strait from The Expanse. Thank you both for being here with us tonight. Thanks for having us. Thank you. No, absolutely. So let's just get right to it. Let's start with the obvious. The Expanse is based on a book. Did you have any familiarity with it beforehand, or kind of how did you delve into it once you found out? I did. I had read the, uh, the first two books before I got involved and uh, was a huge fan. Huge I'm afraid fan. I had no idea. <laughs> 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 I wish I did, because uh, if I knew, I would have been even more excited when I was offered the role. And all I said, uh, it was Hawk Osby, uh, one of the writers of Children of Men and uh, Iron Man. So I immediately said, uh, yes, I'm doing it. He said, don't you want to read it? I said, you wrote it, didn't you? He said, but it's based on some novels. And I said, I will read it, but I'll do it. And so I wish I had. <laughs> so you haven't gone back at it all to look at it? Uh, yes, of course. As soon as I started, we started filming it. I started reading the books. I started with the second book. I cheated because my character is in the second book, really, not in the first one. <laughs> Did you all see any differences between the characters that were written for you for television that compared to the book? We stay pretty true to the books themselves. I mean, we, uh, we wanted to do our best to honor the novels themselves because they are so beloved. And we actually had the two novelists. James S.A. Corey is actually two people. It's Ty Abraham and Daniel Frank. And uh, they were in our writer's room. So they actively wrote episodes. One of them was on set every day. Um, we really wanted to stay true to the book. So the only exception is bringing, of course, Sheree's character forward from the second book to kind of round out the, the kind of visual medium of it, bringing Earth more into the mix than uh, the first book does. Yeah, we stayed pretty loyal to the book, yeah. <laughs> so with them being there, you know, I think people nowadays are getting used to the idea of showrunners. I think it's always been there, but it's now kind of open for people. If you have a question about your character, who's the kind of first person you go to? Is it the showrunner, director, writers? Well, it depends. I mean, you know, this is the first time that I've actually ever worked on something that had source material. Um, usually, if it's an original script or whatever, depending if it's television, you usually go to the creator. Uh, if it's film... You usually go to the director. You can sometimes go to the writer if they're different people. Um, but for us, we had a slew of different people, authorities on the books and um, authorities about science. I mean, Naren Shankar, who's another producer on the show, was a physicist before he started producing. Um, so any kind of scientific questions we had, we'd always go to Narain. But just in terms of uh, you know character background, that kind of stuff, I mean, who better to ask than the novelists? And they're, they're right there. Uh, and Talking about that in general then, um, knowing the story ahead of time and or not knowing the story ahead of time, you said you already had interest based on the writers themselves. Absolutely, yes. 
What did you find most fascinating, though, about the story? Is it the setting, or is it kind of the film noir-esque story itself? Uh, it's, um, apart from the setting, which is amazing, it's the story. Uh, three stories are running parallel, uh, simultaneously. And I love all of them, especially mine, because it's very Shakespearean. Although it's in the space, but it's very, especially my part, is very Shakespearean. And I just fell in love with the character and the story both. And for me, I, um, when I first read the novels, I was really struck, and also the script as well, I think the script actually does this incredibly well as well, um, is the balance between the three different tones of the stories. I mean, you, you have a very kind of classic detective noir thriller in Miller's story. You've got this kind of alien-esque fight for survival out in space and a political thriller back on Earth. And they all supplement each other to push the narrative forward in a very specific way. Um, and the way that Mark and Hawk were able to balance that within the screenplays and the way Ty and Daniel did that within the books, I found incredibly compelling and very rare for, uh, for the genre. You mentioned political thriller as well. We actually have a clip of Shrey being at her most political, I think, if we just take a look real quick. I need him sent to Luna for deeper interrogation. Let the team here go another round. They'll break him. I have a budget. It's already shot to hell. And unlike you, I have to grovel and promise and deliver to get reappointed. This concerns me. How? You're two heartbeats away from running the government on this planet. Yet you're accountable to no one. How does that happen? This boy isn't some hapless smuggler. I believe the OPA may be trying to obtain stealth weapons. Everything is not an OPA plot, and if Earth can't afford a stealth program, how can a bunch of rock tossers? They can't, unless they have found a new friend like Mars. Cold War is a bloodless war. Mutual distrust and complete codependence. Nobody wants to change that. Least of all, Mars. That's another thing. I want every Martian weapons facility under a microscope. They are. And your belter will like gravity on Luna better. That's the only thing he'll like. I'm afraid for him. Heaven help your enemies, Christian. Heaven help us all if Mars and the belt decide to share the toothbrush. Bold move. I give them that. What? Cold War is over. This is something new. Cold War is over. It's, this is something new. <laughs> well, you know, change a few nouns there, and we're not all that different from anything happening today. That's what I love about this. Uh, another thing that I loved about this piece when I read it, uh, although set 200 years from now, but it relatively speaks for today. It's just for the audience to decipher the codes and find out who is who. It's amazing. Does it feel strange, though, the idea that this fantasy is a lot closer to reality than one would want to think? It, is it a strange? You know, I think it's, it's a great function of the genre. I think science fiction, when it's done best, uh, at least throughout you know, the last 100 years or so, it's always thinly veiled symbolism of what's going on at the present time, right? So you, we have these, um, you know, we've got the UN and we've got Mars and 
and the belt, and you can, you can apply that to any kind of historical moment in the last couple hundred years, whether you want to do it today or in the Cold War or colonial in you know, England and America or whatever. Or, um, but it allows people to discuss or you know, talk about these issues and, and have it be digestible and not isolating to the audience. So um, you know, we have this kind of otherworldly large uh, world building element to the show, but we're also talking about topics that really relate to everybody today and relatable to everybody today. Speaking of specifically, since you mentioned it is the UN still. Yeah. You know, you don't necessarily have to go out and talk to somebody who works at the UN to kind of get an idea of what they do, but do you kind of have that access if you wanted it? Of course we do. <laughs> what I love about my character and we have in common is that we don't take no for an answer. So we do our best to save Mother Earth. Earth must come first, but then of course. Well, I mean, did you have a lot of uh, soldier, astronaut, ice truckers to talk to? <laughs> <laughs> so many ice truckers to talk to. Uh, I, I did most of my research based off of the books, frankly. Uh, I, I dug um, into the first two books and tried to ascertain what kind of drove Holden to be out in the belt in the first place. Uh, because everybody you meet on the Canterbury in the first episode is out there for a reason. They're all running from something. Um, but yeah, Holden was in the Navy. He was kicked out of the Navy for insubordinance and, um, and has a streak of not really wanting to uh, adhere to anybody's authority. Um, and that continues on through the story. That doesn't really change. Well, to get a good look of kind of what that's like, you and your, some of your crew, let's take a quick look. Do we still have scopes? Damn straight. Do not lose that ship. Jesus, you're not We're going to... after them. Buddy, I don't think We're that's... losing them! Don't do it, Alex. They just dusted 50 of our friends. Well, let's not make it 55. Alex, I am telling you to go after that ship. What if they don't like being followed? They slip off that screen, they're gone forever. They'll get away with this. With you, I gave an order. You think rank matters now? Get up. I'll do it myself. Get up! We're not going anywhere. Hey, hey, hey! Whoa, whoa! Let's just take a deep breath here, people. All of you. Very angry young man. Very angry. Super angry. Now, at the very end there, there's a little can of some sort floating in the background there, which I'm sure was probably digitally enhanced there. But uh, from what I understand, you know, you dealing with anti-gravity is a lot of kind of wire work. It wasn't necessarily going in the vomit comet or anything like that. Yeah, most of, uh, most of everything you see in the show are practical sets. So what you just saw there is completely practical. Um, and whenever we were doing zero-G, it was all on wires, and we had a choreographer there every time to make sure that we were moving correctly and, um, and making sure it kind of applied to the scene in the correct way. 
So far from what I've seen, I haven't seen you kind of get up into the uh, anti-gravity space. Do you make it there eventually? Uh, no, I'm afraid not this year. Maybe next year. I'm really looking forward to it. And people keep asking me about sex without gravity, and I said, I have no idea. <laughs> I haven't tried it. This guy has tried it. I don't know. How, how is having sex without gravity? Fantastic. Good. <laughs> then you've got to try it. <laughs> Now, how much time do you get to spend with you? Because there's su such an expansive cast here. Some people that have not met yet, not kind of been together in same scene. So what kind of like atmosphere do you have? Do you spend a lot of time with just your crew members and or your committee members? Uh, actually, we spend a lot of uh, time together with uh, uh, his crew. Uh, on Sundays, we're just uh, actors. We get together, we go over the lines, we talk about our characters, and where we're going next. Just like Flash Gordon. <laughs> but I, I was a fan of Flash Gordon, so you can imagine. <laughs> yeah, we all we all really dug each other. I mean, I know it's cliche to say, but we actually really got totally lucky, and everybody gave everything they had and was committed 100% to the show. and. And we did actually every every Sunday on our weekend get together, um, all of us actors, to discuss our choices for the week and um, kind of go through what we wanted to go through and, you know, spent most of our free time together. It's great to uh, live on location. We shot this in Toronto and most of us are from, from the U.S. And almost four and a half months, five months, we get to be together, talk to each other, have free time for each other. It's, it's amazing when you, when you work on location. That's why I love. There's also a lot of great character actors in here that are playing smaller roles. Sheree, I have to ask what it's like to be uh, married to Brian George. Perfect. Love doing it. Such a gentleman and such an amazing actor. Yeah. Now, he's, he's somebody's everybody. You're, if you don't know him by name, you'd, you'd see his face. You know exactly who he is. <laughs> uh, and Stephen, you also very quickly, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, Jonathan Ranks. Banks, the legend. It's such a, it was incredible. It was actually the first scene I shot for the show was with John, and um, it was amazing. I mean, you know that I'm not sure if you guys have seen the first episode yet, but he has a very kind of um, he comes in with a climactic kind of uh, scene for his character, and I just executed it with such incredible kind of vulnerability and grace, and I couldn't think of a better person to kind of deliver the the reality of how claustrophobic and um, mind bending living in space can be. And you mentioned seeing the first episode because the pilot's available for everybody. You know, you'll be able to watch it tonight as well, but pilot season was always a big thing. And with new media, it may have changed a little bit. Being able to kind of see their reaction ahead of time, does it kind of change how you feel about a project? What, in terms of like making a, a pilot? Yeah. We actually didn't make one. We, we were ordered to 10 episodes without a pilot from the beginning. It was straight to series. And, um, you know, I think what it did... Um, you know, did for me and I and for the couple other cast and crew that I've I've spoken to about it. it gives a sense of confidence just within the idea of the show and the people involved and um, you know we got there from day one and threw ourselves in with complete commitment because we were on we we're on the ride I mean it wasn't gonna stop we weren't gonna stop and change things like it, it had to be done well from the beginning and um, and we had that. I mean, everybody from the production designers and, and crew to the actors, directors, writers, everybody gave everything they had and um, really wanted to see the potential for this hit. It was like a 10-hour movie, really. And it has the quality. 
it, it has the quality of movie when you watch it. I was watching it the other day and I was thinking, this looks like a film more than television. But I guess it's larger than television. <laughs> well, I mean, television's becoming the new film in a way. And actually, maybe you can both speak to because you both had experience in television before, or maybe, you know, because you had Magic City, the difference between maybe premium television to broadcast television or basic cable television. Does it feel the same production wise or anything along those lines? It did with this, yeah. I mean, I. I think at the end of the day, it's a, it's a really interesting time in television because we have hit this kind of golden age and um, there's incredible content on multiple platforms that you can see in different kinds of ways. And um, you see these companies like Sci-Fi um, really investing in premium content um, in a real way that, uh, you know, to make a drama, you know, regardless of whether or not it's set 200 years in the future or within the past, or and to get it financed and supported in that way is very difficult in film um, these days. Film has really changed quite a bit, and a lot of the quality writing and um, and production has really gone to TV because you know you do have you have these companies really supporting it, like Sci-Fi does, and you also have the luxury simply of time. You know, you have 10 hours to tell a story, so every uh, step that the character makes or the story goes, you have the time to make it justified. Um, every step of the way, you can have inter incremental growth as opposed to it being kind of at a faster pace in film, which I think is attractive to a lot of artists. It's great for the actors as well, because overnight, you are at the heart of the people. Uh, when I did House of Sand and Fog, uh, after the movie was even nominated for an Oscar, uh, Ben Kingsley and I, people would barely recognize me. After 24, no matter where I went, people would immediately recognize me. Are you the woman on 24? Everywhere, Morocco, Jordan, Tunisia. In uh, Morocco, this 10-year-old boy was following me at the bazaar, and I was afraid. I turned around and I said, what do you want? And he said, Madame, c'est artiste. I said, oui. He said, 24, 24. I said, I give you a sandwich and a coin and just don't let others know who I am. So let, me, let me get out of here as soon as possible. Overnight, people would recognize you and if you like, if they like what they're watching, immediately you're at their hearts, which is perfect for an actor. You also now have uh, other ways for people to recognize you as well. And kind of, I always like to ask this question, the idea that, I love there are people out there who will go, I'll do this really big budget movie so I can make something smaller of my own. You have a voice in the very popular game Destiny, as well as others, <laughs> but that's something that would mass pay off, Mass Effect 1, Mass yeah. Effect 2, that's where I get to play Captain. I wouldn't, play, I wouldn't be able to play Captain in a movie, but in a game, video game, of course I can. And I love the fact that every time I visit friends, their kids come and say, mommy, mommy, your friend is in my game. <laughs> it's like, are you really? I'm like, yes, of course I'm in Destiny. Which one is he playing with? Destiny, it's me. <laughs> Who can have a thick voice like this? <laughs> it's a fantastic voice, of course, though. Thank That's you the important so part. You're so kind, thank you. Well, you guys, I'm sure we'll get ready for like the expanse, the video game. Somebody will put that out. Sure. So. Yeah. That's what we're hoping. I'm hoping for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And the dolls and the gadgets <laughs> and everything else. <laughs> well, we're going to start to turn over some audience questions, questions in a second, but I have one more thing, and I'm starting to do this to you, Stephen, but Sky High is one of the most underrated films in a long time now. So when are you going to get the cast together to kickstart a sequel? 
I don't know. <laughs> I'll have to get on that. <laughs> I'm still very close with Mike Angarano, so I'll, I'll ask. I'll ask if he's on it. Mike, you heard it. He's right there. Let's make some phone calls, Kevin. <laughs> That's right. It's coming. Uh, let's see if anybody has some questions out there. Well, you guys have emphasized the fact that the show has a lot of relationship to now. One of the things, but 200 years in the future, there must be things that you guys had to figure out in your heads that would be what people 200 years in the future would also do. I mean, uh, when you look at where we're at now, 200 years ago, we didn't quite talk the same way. We didn't move the same way. I don't think New York was quite like it is now. So what were the things that you thought about, besides the things that related to now, what were the things you thought about that would be different from now that you had to figure out how to incorporate into your characters? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think what you're, what you're talking about, I think is most emphasized in the belt. Um, you know, when you get to Thomas Jane's world, you see that there's a, the way people are speaking is an amalgamation of, of different kinds of languages. And there's a lot of hand movements and different kinds of, you know, haircuts and tattoos and things. The tattoos became cultural after the early spacesuits were burning people's heads. So they cut their hair a specific way so that it wouldn't get you know, involved with the technology and when things got burned, they just tattoo over them. Um, and the way that people were moving their hands while they talk and that kind of stuff was due to the fact that the comms were really shitty in the beginning and they actually had to use hand movements to communicate with each other. Um, you know, thinking about different things, especially out there, people are taller, they all have to take growth hormones and bone density treatments just to be out there. So people have all these uh, different kinds of uh, physical deformities and um, you start to see the human race starting to evolve into a different physicality out there to the point where they can't even come back to Earth. It's actual torture, um, just having them hang there on the wall. Um, so, you know, I think while it speaks, the show in and of itself, politically, sociopolitically, whatever you want to call it, speaks to a lot that's going on today. Um, We've taken race out of it and more put a, um, a geographic uh, part onto what divides people. Um, so people are defined not necessarily by the way they look, but more where they're from. So uh, Mars and Earth and the belt all have very distinct cultures and of themselves. Um, when I was uh, reading it, trying to make myself ready to portray this role, uh, obviously, I was thinking of the same thing, and I thought maybe the pace is going to change. Uh, future people are faster, but then I, I was thinking of my heroes, uh, Indira Gandhi, 50 years ago, uh, Margaret Thatcher, 36 years ago, Madeleine Albright, 28 years ago, when I got to know her, uh, Secretary Clinton, still, contemporary. There is no difference. They're all focused. They all have that uh, poker face that you can tell. And I thought, maybe I'm lucky in this way because politicians don't change. <laughs> they have the same ingredients <laughs> throughout the history, and they do not change. Even Caesar's face, every time I look at the movies, I see that Caesar had a poker face, and we couldn't tell exactly what he was thinking of. So. Politicians don't change, in my opinion. We don't know. We've seen 200 years. <laughs> I am a huge fan. Huge fan. Love Sky High. Loved Magic City. Huge fan. Um, I'm actually wondering. I'm looking forward to getting into the series, but um, 
I know the fifth book was just released. I don't know if that's ending the whole the whole storyline. If not, if you get up to that point and no new books are released, are you con are the directors gonna take their own direction on where they feel the story should go? Or sure, it's a great question. Um, well, there, I think there are nine books planned, so there's no no shortage of new material coming out. <laughs> um, and we, I don't want to say how far we get in the first season in terms of the the books, um, where we end in the first season and whatnot, but um, we have no shortage of uh, of material to pull from. That's for sure. Um, and we have the authors there with us, so you know we're kind of growing with them as we go. Thanks, man. On top of that, since there are shows like The Walking Dead that you know have evolved what the original source material was and kind of changed what it could be, do you feel that you have some sort of, I don't want to say power, but some sort of uh, influence on what possibly could come in the future because the writers are there with you? I think, I think, I think that there's no way of it not, uh, at least, you know, I, I know Ty, for, for example, um, who's on set almost every day. Uh, I think it would be difficult for him not to see our faces um, you know, when he's writing the books in the future. But the truth is, is that we have so far to go uh, until we get to even the end of the fifth book, which is already finished, um, that he's so far ahead of the game. Uh, I'm not sure what we're doing now necessarily affects uh, what Hill and Daniel will be writing in the future for those books. I'm, I don't, I don't the know. The resources are enormous. Five novels, each is like six, 700 pages. So I guess we still have to wait for them. <laughs> to we have a long way to go exactly. <laughs> until we get there. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say first off that I am a fan of the things that you've done in the past, especially Believe. That episode you did, I was Thank crying. You. Oh my gosh, you were so good. Thank but um, I just wanted to ask more of Grounded in Reality, how has working on the project changed you? in your life after working on it? You know, how has, immensely, how has it evolved? Yeah. Immensely, it was amazing. Uh, what happens in the show, it's just like 24. For me, it's a mixture of 24 and Star Wars. Because <laughs> whatever the show suggests or foresee, it happens. Uh, episode nine, eight or nine, I ask a politician friend of mine who lives on Mars. I say, Frank, why do you live on Mars? Because I'm not happy with the idea. I'm afraid of Mars. And that at any given moment, they may take over the Earth and take our resources. So I'm not very keen on this idea of, uh, of uh, Frank. I say, Frank, why, why do you live there? He says, because I like the environment. I say, why not Albuquerque? It looks the same. <laughs> Which, it looks the same. I had not seen Albuquerque until last week. It looks the same. I've seen the picture of Mars. Anyhow, he says, look, darling, I like to live on Mars because of the fact that we had a garden here on Earth, and we turned it into a rock. Over there, they inherited a rock, and through a common goal, they turned it into a garden. When I was reading it, I thought, how beautiful, how poetical, how philosophical. Went back to LA, I live in a gated community in the suburb. Had a letter from the Homeowners Association saying, get rid of your pots and plants, you won't be able to save them, because you can only water your, your plants 
twice a week. How could you save roses and geraniums in the pots twice a week? So I had to call, I call him Sir Charles. I said, Sir Charles, come and take my flowers. He said, what about the pots? I said, take the pots too, I don't need them. After he left, I poured a cup of tea for myself, went to the backyard, and I literally cried, because I noticed how I am turning my backyard into a rock. That's how. We're running out of water. Global warming is not a joke. It sure isn't. It's happening already. What about you? Yeah, for me, um, no, for me the show, I think, just personally had, a, had an incredible kind of effect. I mean, working on a, uh, a show of this size and um, of this many moving parts with so many great artists um, in front, behind the camera, writing our scripts, um, directing episodes, creating these sets that we were literally blowing up every two weeks. Um, it was just a, it was an incredible collaborative experience um, on the skill that I, I had never, I had never worked on before, and um, it was a very inspiring place to be, an inspiring place to work, and um, it's nice to see that it's possible. Hi, um, it's always good when books that turn into shows stay true to the books. So, what was it when you read the books that you were like, "This is this characteristic or this"? or whatever of my character that I want to stay true to and I want to project in the show? Well, uh, my character uh, is, starts chapter five, second book. Uh, Christian Avasarala, a politician who comes from a tribe of politicians, a master manipulator. Uh, she, she believes that uh, the end justifies the means and uh, Believe me, uh, she's supposed to be the uh, undersecretary deputy of the United Nations, but her knowledge exceeds her, her title. She knows everybody's names at the UN. She knows everybody's psychological profiles, background, pay rates. She even knows who is sleeping with whom. So when I was reading this description, I thought I have to be there and I have to play it as uh, uh, p perfect, as possible because this woman is perfect. She speaks 10 languages. She's, she has it all at her disposal and all she needs to do is to take action. So that's why every time I just, I'm about to start a scene, I, I tell myself, action, and then it happens. <laughs> I wanted to make sure that Holden's journey from um, self-absorbed, cynical, uh, slackerish guy that you meet in the beginning, um, his transformation into this kind of inadvertent revolutionary. Uh, I wanted to make sure that that arc hit hard. I mean, that, that's the thing that struck me when I first read the books was um, just how unprepared this guy was for the circumstance he finds himself in and the kind of growth that he has to make uh, to just survive and to keep the re last remaining uh, folks in his crew alive and, um, and to tell that story as honestly as possible because he's, it's, he's, a, very, he's a very gray character. Um, you know, he's not black and white by any means and, and he makes a lot of mistakes along the way uh, and he kind of fumbles his way into greatness uh, and I wanted to make sure that that kind of rang true. 
Hi guys, uh, I want to thank you. The show looks amazing and it kind of gives me hope that someday I'll get shows based off of Destiny, the video game, or Dead Space because it has all these elements that I'm geeking over. Um, but that's neither here nor now. Um, you did mention that the show has so many elements to it, detective noir or um, just political issues and, you know, with that otherworldliness. Which one of some of those issues do you think is going to have a lot more, I guess, gravity within show that's going to pull viewers and it's going to have a bigger weight? Or if anything, or just all three? Sure. Yeah, I think um, all three of them are very important to the structure of the story. So you'll, you'll get more of each. Um, and all of them affect each other. So like the, the resource problem on Earth, for example, you know, when you see the first episode. And I, I love this also about the Terry McDonough, who we have to mention is an incredible director of one and two and also nine and 10. Um, made very subtle choices, uh, you know, when, when she's flying into the UN and you see very subtly, there's no close up on it, but there's just sea walls around Manhattan. There's sea walls around um, the Statue of Liberty. It kind of looks like she's, you know, in a kiddie pool. Um, the environmental problems here directly affect what's going on in the belt, for example. Like, I'm on an ice hauler, which is kind of the modern-day equivalent of an oil tanker. But I'm hauling water. That's what I'm doing. It's become the most valuable resource in the whole solar system. So all of these tensions and uh, different issues, there's, there's, we're at the point of conflict and rebellion in the belt because the UN and Mars control their resources, and they're at the mercy of them. So all of this stuff ties in together, which is, I think, why I found the kind of uh, the harmony between the different story structures so impressive in the books. And, um, and I, I think, I, you know, our, our creators for this show really uh, managed to do the same in the show. And um, so to your point and to your question, they, they all remain incredibly important uh, because they all directly affect each other. Thank you, Sheree. Thank you, Stephen, for being here. Thank you for Thank being you, here. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you so much. And Apple Store.